All right, so we're in the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The book of Thessalonians was written to a group of Christians in the city of Thessalonica, the ancient city of Thessalonica. Paul was the one who was responsible for planting this church. Acts chapter 17, we looked at that story. It was planted or started in uh, very uh, wild and difficult circumstances. And uh, as... Um, as uh, wild and difficult circumstances, somebody get that door. Uh, wild and difficult circumstances as Paul and the other brothers and sisters were being uh, forced out of town. The church was left there, and as the church was left there, they were left to uh, encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to bind themselves together, to become close-knit because of the persecution that they were facing. Christians face persecution even today as they did back then, and uh, as uh, they were facing this difficult and challenging persecution, um, they were able to forge a strong bond. And that strong bond that they had amongst themselves was well known in the uh, Macedonian area. The people in Macedonia, uh, the Christians in that Macedonian area, had a great affection for the people of Thessalonica, and they were encouraged by the way they loved and, and supported one another. We've worked our way through the first three chapters, and we said then, we will say again, that as we get ourselves to chapter 4, all of Paul's letters are written to a large degree to address issues. Um, maybe it's a theological issue, maybe it's a pastoral issue, maybe it's some kind of struggle in the church. And Paul is writing to address those issues. He writes because he has great affection, but he's also writing to address particular issues. And, and we should understand that. This is early church stuff, right? These are, this is just getting started. I mean, we, we talked in the beginning, this is somewhere about 20 years after the start of the first church in Thessalonica. So, I mean, we're looking at, you know, 15 to 20 years. I mean, th these are people who came out of a pagan society, out of a Jewish background, and they're having to learn what it means to be Christians. I mean, think about our own lives. Many of us grew up in a Christian church. Many of us came of age in a Christian church. Many of us were born into families who have years and 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 years of legacy in a Christian faith, in the Christian church. And we still struggle with some of these issues that Paul has to address. Can you imagine how it would have been if you'd come from a pagan environment or a Jewish background and you're having to learn what it means to follow the way, what it means to follow Jesus. And so Paul is writing to give instruction on how to follow Jesus. And when he writes the church in Thessalonica, he says, first of all, you guys are doing a great job loving each other. Um, this is a church that uh, I believe is like a lot of churches in in, in in, in America, a lot of ARP churches, uh, where they love each other very, very well. Uh, they may not understand why they love each other so much, but they do love each other really well. And so Paul is saying, you guys are loving each other. Great job. Let me explain why you love each other. And by the time we get to chapter 4, he gives final instructions. He begins to bring this letter to a conclusion. Uh, my wife says that First Thessalonians is a book that I, it was made for me because Paul says... In the beginning of chapter 4, finally, my brothers, uh, finally then, so you think he's going to bring it to a conclusion, and then he starts back on something else in chapter 5, and then brings it to a conclusion later. She says, that's what I do all the time. Well, let me end here, and then I start something else later. But this book was that kind of book. Paul says, finally, and so when you first read this, this is the beginning of his final instructions 
to this congregation in this first letter. He writes another letter to them. We'll study it, start it next week. But in this first letter, this is his, the beginning of his final instructions. This section, chapter 4, is going to be divided into two parts. The first verses 1 through 12 and the second verses 13 through 18. They both are written for instructions to deal with particular issues. The first section has to do with instructions for walking with the Lord in holiness. And then the second section of chapter 4 are instructions that have to do with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to help us deal with some false understandings, some false teachings, some misunderstandings that the church in Thessalonica had, but we have as well when it comes to our understanding of the return of Christ. So I think this is incredibly helpful and will be helpful. Let's go, if you will, so let's get started. Somebody, if you will, read verses 1 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians 4. All right, thank you, Mike. So first, this first section is instructions for holiness. Instructions from holiness. And I think it's important. I'm going to use the board because I want to make sure we understand and we get all this down. Uh, instructions for holiness. The first one, the first instruction he gave, somebody take a stab at it. What is the first instruction that we find in verses 1 through 8 for holiness? What does Paul say? Just put it in your own words. Anybody? encourages us. He encourages us to walk in holiness. So as he's encouraging us to walk in holiness, great point. I urge you, I encourage you to walk in holiness. What is one thing we are to not do, or what are we to do to walk in holiness? It is in verses, let's see, it starts in verse 3 down through verse 8. What are they? Right, we're going to do it to please God. Yes, we're going to do it to please God. So walking in holiness is for the purpose of pleasing God. He's encouraging us to do it. But what is the instruction that he gives us in verses 3 through 8? Go ahead, say it loudly. Abstain from sexual immorality. I planted that. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. Uh, I didn't plant that. Abstain from sexual immorality. But that's exactly what I had written down. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I realize, right... Um, I'm going to say this with, with great care and concern. I realize who I'm dealing with, okay? If I was teaching this lesson with college students, I probably would go in a little different direction with this than I would with you guys in this adult Bible study. But the point is, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, you have to remember, these folks came into the faith from a pagan culture. Uh, if you were a, Christ, a Jewish person who came to faith in Christ, then you came to faith in Christ from a Jewish background. So sexual 
immorality, sexual morality, I should say, sexual morality was more something with which you were familiar if you were a Jew. If you came from a pagan background, sexual immorality would have been something with which you would have been very familiar. It would have been normal. It would have been accepted. A lot of the pagan cults of the day were worshipped through sexual practices and sexual acts. In some senses, the culture out of which the Thessalonians came to faith, if they were not Jews, was similar to our culture today, which is very licentious, very much let everything go, whatever you want to do with your body is fine, it's your body, you do what you want to do with your body, you do whatever you want to do. Paul says, if you come to faith in Christ, however, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to forego that and you have to learn to control yourselves. Uh, look at verse 3, that you abstain for sexual immorality. And then somebody read verse 4 again for us. Now, each one of you knows how to control your own body in holiness and honor. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? The last, in fact, fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Anybody know that list off the top of their head? Self-control. That's exactly right. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the development of self-control. And so what Paul says here is that we have to learn self-control in a specific context with reference to sexual urges, with reference to sexual practices. Right? But for all of us, if we could take this principle and apply it in a much broader sense, self-control with reference to any kinds of actions or uh, thoughts or uh, words that we say, right? So uh, it's interesting sometimes we've got to just take this and, and, and just go off, just, just off course, just a little bit in application. I hear people say sometimes, and my children say this, and I've said this too, well, I can't help it. I just have a temper, and that's just who I am. You're just going to have to learn to live with it. Well, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to control that temper. Well, I just tell you what, you know, one of the things you've got to understand about me is just, it's, just, it's just a language I grew up with. It's just my mouth. I, you know, it, I don't mean anything by it. That's just the kind of language I grew up using. And, and you know, I'm just going to keep using that kind of language because it, it doesn't make me holy or not holy. And that's just who I am. I'm sorry. No, we've got to learn to control our tongues. Um... Well, you know, that, it's just my personality. I just like to get involved and meddle in everything. No, you've got to learn to control that urge, right? And so in a sense, we could take this lesson, though it's specifically applied to sexual immorality, and say, instead of saying abstain from sexual morality, we can make this positive and say demonstrate self-control. Because he says with reference to sexual immorality, incidentally, it affects everyone. You sin against your fellow man in this way. But all of our sins, usually sins of lacking control, sin against our fellow man in various ways. And so what he says here is that we need to make sure to walk in holiness, abstain from sexual immorality, or better, in a more broad sense, practice self-control. Practice self-control. And it's important. I do think it's important to note that Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, as well as in 1 Corinthians. He makes this connection in verse 6 that no one transgress the, and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all things. Sexual immorality has a specific, and this is something that, that young folks need to understand, but, but folks in the church need to understand, and folks in our culture need to understand, 
It has a specific quality to it that affects not just the person doing it, but the other people involved as well. And Oh, I'm sure Paul knew about Sodom and Gomorrah. Absolutely. And so Paul is saying here, right, we, we've got to learn how to control ourselves in the honor and the glory of God. And certainly those examples of the Old Testament are in the forefront of his mind. They should be in the forefront of our minds. Maybe in our own lives we have examples of, of where immorality has gotten us in trouble or people we know in trouble. And so we've got to recognize those examples are there as a demonstration of the principle that it affects everyone, affects us, everybody involved. And he says, don't sin against one another. You love each other, don't sin against each other this way. So that's the first instructions. Any thoughts before we move on to the second instruction? You may. Well, that's okay. Go ahead. Sisters do that. Well, that's a great question. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into it. I'll just use Jesus' words uh, to answer it. And that answer, that, that is from John 3.17. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in the world should not perish but have everlasting life. 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Next phrase, the world had already condemned itself by its own unbelief. Uh, Paul says, What is made known about God... Uh, his power, his greatness, his uh, wisdom, all those things can be known about God as eternal nature, and yet man in his sinful state suppressed that. So what did God think about them? They were sinners. He gave them the opportunity to be saved. Now we may ask the question, is that fair? The answer is yes, because fair means get what you deserve. What's unfair is that any of us should be saved. Unfair is what we experience as God's people. We have received grace. And so it is fair for us to get what we deserve. We don't want fairness. We want grace. And what God decided to do for these pagans who came into the faith was give them grace. And that's God's prerogative. So the answer to your question is, did God condemn them? No, they condemned themselves. They got what they deserved for their rejection of what they could know about God. So uh, that's what the Bible's answer would be. That's what Jesus' answer would be. I could go into much greater detail, but I don't have time. Does that suffice? Maybe we can have that conversation later if, it, if you, if you want to have more conversation about it. That's a great question, though. Really good question. Yes, John? A related scripture, 1 Corinthians six eighteen. Run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. That's correct. And that's where Paul makes that connection here and in 1 Corinthians. It says sexual sin is of significantly, is significantly important. And it's, a, it's always been an issue in, in human society. Um, and so that's, a, I think, it's important for us to recognize. You know, we can look at our world today and say, man, it's become so licentious. It's become so caught up in, you know, sexual identity and sexual perversion or whatever. 
as we look around us. But the reality of it is, is that's nothing new in the world. It's been going on for years. The world's oldest profession is what? Go ahead, Buzzy. Prostitution. Prostitution. So we understand that it's always been an issue. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. And there's a reason why that is. It's, a, it's, it's going away from God and, and enjoying whatever we want to enjoy rather than what God wants to enjoy. And so it's, a, it's, a fundamental, it's fundamentally seeking to please ourselves as if we're God versus submitting ourselves to the Lord. So that's a great point and something that's very important. So the first thing he says is abstain from sexual immorality. Anything else? I don't want to cut the conversation off, but I do want to move forward. We've got to get through the rest of this chapter. All right, so the second. Somebody read verses 9 through 12 for us, please. The second instruction he gives us for holiness. Okay, thank you, Debbie. So, if we jump in verses 9, concerning brotherly love, you have no need to write anyone to write you. You're doing this, okay? You're doing a great job. But what's he say at the end of verse 10? But we urge you, or back to the point that, that Ruth made, which was great, we encourage, we urge you to do what? Love each other more and more. So how do we instruct instructions for holiness? Abstain from sexual immorality and continue to love the brothers. Yeah, as a whole. <laughs> Let's underline it and circle it because they're very, very important. Sisters. Uh, so, yes, uh, the brothers and sisters, absolutely, 100%. And, and when he uses the word brethren there, that's a, a reference to everybody. It's not just to a masculine group of people. So continue to love the brothers and the sisters, right? And so it's important for us to recognize that Paul says here, you are to abstain from sexual immorality as you're learning to walk in holiness. And the way we walk in holiness as well, according to Paul here, is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, to continue to do that. You're doing it? Hey, you can always love more. You can always be better. I think that is such a, 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 an important concept that is sometimes lost in the modern Christian expression and Christian experience. Because so many of us, and maybe I, I may be wrong on this, I may be reading it wrong, but so many people I talk to, uh, and, and I was like this as well, want to be so concerned about being legalistic that we don't want to think about what we need to be doing better. The idea of being better at who we are is sometimes lost because we don't want to be legalistic. We want to be under grace, not under law. And when you start talking about being better, we start bringing law into it. And Paul says, in our motivation to walk in holiness, we ought to be wanting to be better lovers of each other. more Enjoy the fellowship with each other more fully. We ought to strive to be better than we already are. Right? You're doing a great job, but you need to be better. Right? So when we watched college football this weekend, um, there were some teams that won and some teams that lost, okay? But every coach is going to bring his players together, win or lose. 
And they're going to have film session. They've already had it. They're going to continue to have it. They're going to be in their different position group rooms, and they're going to be in their different meetings. And the coach is going to say to players, whether you won on Saturday or whether you lost on Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, or Thursday, or Friday, right? Whether you lost, you got to be better, right? Because if you lost, you got to be better to give yourself a chance to win. If you won, you got to be better to continue to win. And so as what we reckon, he's going to point out, I mean, you did really well here, but you can be better here. And that's what Paul's saying. We need to continue to try to be better at loving each other as we walk in holiness. Abstain from sexual immorality, continue to love each other, continue to walk in holiness. Gives two ways in which we are to love the brothers, continue to love the brothers. Two ways we can grow in our love for one another. They're found in verse uh, 11 and 12. Somebody read verses 11 and 12. You read it to your mind and tell me if you can determine one way in which you and I are called to love our brothers and be better at loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. What's one way we can do it? Live quiet quiet lives, right? Yeah, live quiet lives. Don't draw attention to yourself. Live quiet lives. Maintain to yourself. Don't draw attention to yourself. You know, you, you don't need to go out here and say, look at me. You just need to live a quiet life. Keep being who you are. Seek to love the Lord. Seek to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. To use Jesus' words, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And you don't need all the attention. You don't need to be written up in this. You don't need to be written up in that. Though that's nice. But you live a quiet life. You know, you think about these people. How do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're in Thessalonica, there's persecution all around. If you go out and draw a whole bunch of attention to yourself, you're asking the world and the government to come down on you. Bring it on, man. I'm going to stand up for Jesus. That's great. But guess who's also going to get the wrath of the government? Me. Right? And everybody else in the room. And so he says one of the ways you can do it is to love each other, but don't draw a bunch of attention to yourself. Be faithful. Continue doing the ministry. But you don't need to go out here and draw a whole bunch of attention to yourself. Okay? Live quiet lives. What's another way? There's three of them in here. Work with your hands. Work with your hands, right? So work with your hands. That means take care of yourself, right? Work with your hands. Take care of yourself. He says particularly there are two things that come from working with your hands. So verse 11 Work with your hands as we instructed you. Then the words in verse 12, so that, the words so that are conjunctions, right? So that, what? There are two things happens. What, what happens after he says work with your hands? What's that? People from the outside will respect you. Hey, these people are actually taking care of themselves. Hey, these people are actually meeting their own needs. Hey, these people are actually doing what they need to be doing, Right? People on the outside are going to look in and say, these Christians are actually doing what needs to be done. They're taking care of themselves. They're working with hands. They're going to grow in respect. Right? Hard work is always respected. People see it. People see you taking care of yourself. The great equalizer, and I've, I've read this from an economic standpoint, I think it's helpful. The great equalizer in our society is, right, Commerce and the production of goods and hard work and the gathering of currency. Because you know what? If I got a business, I don't care who's coming in there. If you got the currency, I'll sell you what I got. And if you want what I got, you're going to come in. 
And so as we work through this, right, the great equalizer is, hey, listen, we're going to do hard work. We're going to produce good goods. We're going to sell fairly. We're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to live quiet lives, right? We're not going to draw attention to ourselves. And we're going to take care of the business so that the outsiders will respect us. And what's the other thing he says? The independent. You won't be dependent on other people. You won't be dependent on other people. This is one of those things that freedom or independence is a very important thing in the eyes of God. Instructions for holiness, well, how do we do it? Well, we work with our hands so that we won't be dependent upon other people so that we're not owned by other people. Right? If you are dependent upon someone, then someone manipulates them. You're beholden to them. They are owning you, as it were. Right? But if you are independent, and you're working with your hands, you're taking care of your business, you're doing your thing, you're being industrious, you're not dependent upon them. You're not beholden to them. There's a reason why, and forgive me for saying this, but I think it needs to be said, the rich men north of Richmond want everybody to be dependent upon them. Because they want to control everybody. And if you're beholden to them and you're dependent upon them, then you keep them in power and you keep doing whatever they want you to do. Paul says, be free from that. Be independent. Right? So, he says that, and then the last thing is, somebody said at the back, so there's, alright, so he says, first thing in verse 11 is to walk, uh, work with our hands. Uh, he says there, aspire to live quietly. What's the one in the middle? Somebody say it loud. That's right, thank you. Mind your own business. This is what Paul's saying, alright? Paul says, here's me, right? This is what Paul's saying. Every one of us we, this is me. This is my domain, okay? Let me just put a circle right there. That's me, right? This is you and your domain, right? As long as both of us are hanging out in our domains, we ain't got no problems, right? you quiet. I'm quiet. We're having a good time. We're independent of one another. We're out here working, taking care of each other. We'll meet each other's needs as needs come available. That's part of loving each other. We got a problem, however... When you start making your way over here into my domain. Because when you wake your way over into my domain, then you try to get all up in my business. Paul says the solution to that problem is for you to take yourself back over here to your business and leave us alone. And when you would do that, we would all be happy. The problem is so many of us want to be all up in each other's business. That's why we got problems in the church. That's why we got problems in the community. That's why we got problems everywhere. Well, I want to know what's going on in your life. What's it got to do with you? We're learning this at my house with my children. What does your brother have to do with anything of what I just told you to do? It's Jesus talking to John and Peter at the end of John's gospel. John, Jesus says to Peter, come, follow, come over here and talk to me. And Peter says, well, what about that guy over there? Jesus said, what's that got to do with you? If it was my will for him to stay till I return, what does that matter to you? I said to you, Peter, follow me, right? So this is the problem. This is the problem, man. We get this problem all the time. We got to learn to keep our nose in our own business. Leave people alone. If there's an issue that we need to address, then we address it because it's affecting the life of the church, then fine. Outside of that, quit getting all up in everybody's business. Quit talk trying to know what's going on in everybody's life. Take yourself back over there and mind your business. You've got enough to worry about and leave me alone as I'm trying to do my thing. I mean, that's what we want. That's a good American philosophy. We just want to be left alone. Paul says, mind your own affairs 
and get your nose out of everybody else's business. That's how you learn to love each other better. Quit worrying about everything that's going on in everybody else's life and take care of your own life and your own problems. Because most of the time, people all up in your business, they got a dumpster fire at home. And they need to spend more time worried about what's going on over here than they are over here. So that's what Paul gets to. So I have gone too long, so let me give you the final instructions. Any thoughts on that? But I think, that is, I think those three points are so important for our world today about live quietly, mind your own business, work with your hands. Because when you do that, the outside will respect you and you won't be dependent upon anyone and you'll be living to the glory of God and you'll be free to live to the glory of God in that way. So let me finish this up. Somebody go verses 13 through 18. We're going to rapid fire these. Somebody go 13 through 18. Okay, thank you, Bonnie. So the other big issue that Paul's addressing at the end of chapter 4 is the issue of the return of Christ, the comfort of one another in the Lord. And so he gives instructions for the comfort of the one another in the Lord. Uh, there was a mindset, an idea, and it comes out to the foreground, not only in First Thessalonians, but in Second Thessalonians in particular. The idea was that Jesus was going to come back immediately, ascended into heaven, and he's going to come back immediately. The problem was people were dying right before Jesus returned. Jesus said, I'm coming back, and people thought he was going to be immediate in his return. But people were dying before Jesus returned. They died in the hope that Jesus would return, and then Jesus didn't return. And so people were like, what do we do? What's going on here? And so Paul has to write to correct a misunderstanding. Jesus is going to return in Jesus' time in the last day. We are living in the last days, but Jesus has not returned yet. So what do we do in the short term? What do we do in the meantime? Well, we comfort one another. And we comfort one another in the loss of our loved ones because falling asleep is a euphemism for death. We comfort one another in this moment with the hope of Christ's return. And he gives six particular truths. I'm going to rapid fire them for you. I don't have time to write them down. Rapid fire them for you. Six specific truths that I see in this that help us. And I think this is still an essentially important passage of scripture for us today because we still wrestle with this people still wrestle with what happens at death what happens to our loved ones what will happen when christ returns we're waiting on him we still grieve but we don't grieve as the, as those who have no hope rather we grieve as those who have hope in christ so verse 14 first first point that he says here is jesus will bring those who have died with him when he returns all right. For this we declare, right? So he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus returns, he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, what happened to them after they died? 
Well, their bodies go to the grave, right? Or to the crematorium, wherever you have them, or wherever, the bottom of the sea, whatever, right? Their bodies go there, but their soul, if they're in the Lord, go to be with the Lord. Jesus says to be, I mean, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So they're there with him. The soul is there. We're living in what's called the intermediate state. They're living with the Lord. If you die in the Lord, you go to be with the Lord. Your body's going to be in the grave, but the soul goes to be with the Lord. So when Jesus returns, he is going to bring them with him. How do we know that? Well, verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. Because Jesus died, because he rose again, he conquered death. They're with him. He's going to bring them with it. All right? We comfort one another in that reality. That's important. What's going to happen to our loved ones? Well, they're going to come back with Jesus if they died in the Lord. Second point is, those who have died will rise first. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So if the Lord should return today, we're still here. What happens to our loved ones? Well, they will go before us. They will rise before us. Verse 15 says, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we've died. We're still here. If Christ returns, you're worried what's going to happen. Well, I can promise you this. They're with the Lord. He's going to bring them with him. And when he returns, we are not going to precede them. They're going to precede us. All right? They're going to go be with him and reunited with the Lord and their souls in the air. And that they, when they are reunited with their souls and the Lord in the air. Okay? Keep this in mind. Now, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, they will rise first, go meet met with the Lord, right? We won't precede them. They will rise first, they'll go meet with the Lord. Well, how do I know this is going to happen? How do I know I haven't missed it? Because people in Thessalonica were concerned. Did we miss the return of Jesus? What happened? People are dying. Well, I could promise you this, Paul says, you won't miss this. This will be unmistakable when it happens. There'll be a cry of an archangel, the likes of which you've never heard, the sound of a trumpet. Spafford put it, when the, 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 the Lord shall descend, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Right? So you're not going to miss the return of Jesus, I could promise you that. Nobody will. Believer, unbeliever, nobody will miss the return of Christ. It's not just going to happen, Ooh. Oh, we're driving this car, and all of a sudden, I'm no longer there. Hogwash. When Christ returns, there ain't going to be no question. There ain't going to be just cars running off the road because nobody's driving them anymore. It's going to be over, right? And when it's over, we're going to know it's over, okay? So he says, you haven't missed it because you will know it. Verse 17, Then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So they will receive resurrected bodies. The souls will be reunited with resurrected bodies. Then we will go be with them in the air. Right? So the Lord's going to catch us up and go to the air. This is where the concept of the rapture comes, though it's been greatly exaggerated and confused throughout history. But it's the idea, now we're going to go be with the Lord in the air. They will receive new bodies, resurrected bodies. We will receive resurrected bodies, new bodies, in that moment, right? And then, as we're there with him, we will descend to earth together. All of those who have died before in the Lord 
receive a resurrected body, reunited in the sky. We will go be with Him, and then all of God's people will descend with their King onto the earth with the new heavens and the new Jerusalem, the remade earth, and we will dwell here in a remade earth for all eternity with our Lord. That's the hope of resurrection. And Paul says, you encourage one another. Well, we don't, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because if, if God says this is true, but more than that, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, we know this is true. And then there's that great line. And so we are always be with the Lord. There's never a time when you, nor I, nor our loved ones will ever be separated from the Lord, our Lord. Neither life, nor death, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We will always be with Him. So you need not fear about your loved ones. You need not worry about your own life. You will be with the Lord. But you also need to understand when Christ returns, we're going to receive new bodies. I had somebody ask me last Wednesday night, I was talking about this. Kid grew up in church all his life. He's in his late, his early 30s. And in me he said, well, you talked about Jesus' body bearing scars, and you, said a con- you made a comment about how our bodies will still bear scars, you believe. He's like, but Jesus' body was resurrected, ours won't be. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Yes, it will be. Yes, it will be. So there's still confusion. So Paul writes this and says, here's instructions for comforting one another in the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need to encourage each other. Hey, listen, we're always with the Lord. We're going to be with Him. Those who have fallen asleep, we're going to see them again. We're going to be with Him. They're actually got a benefit. They're going to receive their new bodies before we do if we're still here. And the next time somebody says to you, well, heaven got a new angel, or mama got her wings, you look at them and say, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, don't, 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 don't reduce mama to an angel. Mama is a person created the image of God for whom Christ died and on whose half Christ raised who will receive a new body and reign with him both now and forever and know the mind of her creator when the angels will not. Don't reduce mama. Don't reduce your son. Don't reduce anybody. This is no, that's reductionistic. You don't want to be getting wings. You want to have your soul in presence with the Lord so that you can be reunited with your body and you can reign with Christ forever. That's something the angels long to have. Never will, but they long for it. And they're jealous of you and me because we get to experience that grace and they watch us to see the plan of God unfold. So keep that in mind, right? When we go to be with the Lord, we're not looking down. We're looking at our Savior because that's the one in whom we have hope eternally and we're going to be with Him. Our eyes are never going to be off Him. He's the greatest and we're going to be with Him forever. For them to be coming back and visiting or for them to be looking down and all these other things, nice concepts, but the reality of it is is For them to say what's going on here is more important than what's going on there. And they are with the Lord and they will never not be with the Lord. They can't come here because then they would be without the Lord. They're going to be with the Lord forever. As will you. 
And so you encourage one another with these words. I'm going to end there. Uh, I'll just pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We ask that you'll be with us. We ask that you will uh, encourage us. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this truth. Uh, and we thank you for your grace. Help us to live lives of holiness, but also lives of comfort and encouragement to one another in the truths of your word. For it's in Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Sorry about it. I went too long. <laughs>